Let's turn our attention to God's Word this morning as we continue in our study of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading glory, crown of glory. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're a God who has spoken, breathed out your word, and through the working of your spirit has ensured that it was written down for us and transmitted so that we have access to it. And now in this time, your Holy Spirit also will carry out, you promise, a illuminating ministry as we're into the Word. And so, Lord, carry that out, that we would understand why you've said what you've said. We would recognize the applications to our beliefs, to our behaviors. Give us teachability before you in this time. Give us alertness of mind. We put our time in your hands, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. These opening verses of the fifth chapter have been on a series of lessons about church leadership. It's actually part five. Uh, Gretchen was tempted to maybe put part 211 or something like that. Uh, it's taken us a while to maybe get through this, but uh, trying to press forward and uh, working our way ahead on it. Understanding how God wants leadership to be carried out and function within the context of the local church. One of the conclusions, of course, as we're working our way through this, is that God intends leadership in the local church to be as countercultural as He expects the lifestyle of the believer to be countercultural. Uh, we're all in the midst of a fallen world, and so it makes sense that the way God would want us to live as individuals and corporately probably is countercultural to what are the prevailing patterns of the world. And we've been looking at some of these countercultural lessons of leadership. We've seen five of them so far. One, that God actually wants leadership in a local church. Uh, in the United States, because of the heritage we gain, there's often a sort of an unbiblical, misguided assumption that people do better just left to themselves. And this, you know, valiant orientation toward independence. And maybe the church ought to be that way. Maybe we ought not to have leadership at all. God says, well, no, that's, uh, that's not the plan. I am intending in all the structures in this fallen world to have a structure to them and an authority framework in which they operate. We also saw that God said thus, and these leaders in the context of the church are essentially to be shepherds, not worldly rulers. They are to be shepherds. In fact, the, the word pastor, which is a common word talking about a church leader, is actually a Latin word for shepherd. Uh, and I meant to say that before, and I don't think I did say that to you, but uh, maybe most of you knew that. God says, listen, the focus here is not on power, the focus is on feeding. That's what the feeding and protecting, that's the nature of a shepherd. That's the nature of church leadership and pastoral leadership. 
We also learned as one of those rules of leadership that the flock, the local church body, is actually God's flock, not the leader's flock. Now, at times we can get to talking about that as this, this pastor's church, that pastor's church, and I suppose there's not any deep heresy in doing that, but let's make sure we're not drawing the wrong conclusion from such terminology. The flock's always God's flock, not, not a person's flock, uh, not the leader that he's assigned to it. And we also saw that principle that leaders are still only sheep within the flock. They've been given a special role, but they haven't been put on a different level in the sense that they're no longer sheep, just sort of a mixture of sheep and something else. We're all still human beings. And more than that, we're redeemed human beings, made children of God. There's not levels in the, in the family, all right? Different tasks, different gifts, but same level. And that's important to remind ourselves if there's ever that tendency to, you know, maybe uh, elevate pastors to a different level or church leaders to a different level. And by the way, there is that tendency, all you have to do is look at church history, not just the contemporary scene, but church history. Uh, those in leadership have been elevated to levels where people, you have to, have to kind of acquaint them with the reality, no, they're still sheep. Well, what, what do you mean? You know, so things get all twisted, don't they? And God says, Listen, I want you to be countercultural. They've got different roles, but they're still sheep within that flock. And last time we were talking about the fact that local church shepherds are called upon to practice oversight. Well, I'm going to avoid explaining what all of that means. And I want to move on today into looking at some of the other final lessons here on leadership. Look at each of them maybe a little bit less comprehensively than we've been looking at some of these earlier ones. In verse 2, we encounter this statement, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Lesson number 6 in this batch of lessons about leadership in the local church in this opening part of the fifth chapter is this. Shepherds are not to be coerced draftees. Church leaders clearly in God's plan are to serve not under compulsion, but willingly. Uh, point is... You're not supposed to do an election in their absence and say, guess what, you weren't here, but you're now elected. You've got this role. That's, that's not the plan, all right? That's not how it's supposed to work. God says, no, no, there's no coercion here. Uh, they're not under compulsion to do something because of pressure brought to bear against their lives. No, they're, they're supposed to be doing something willingly. God wants willing shepherds under shepherds not coerced under shepherds. And actually, as you begin to work your way through God's Word, you discover that that perspective on God's part has always been true of God. He is looking for willingness, not coercion. I was thinking one of the examples, you see this in the Old Testament, uh, as God was dealing with the people in the Exodus journey and setting up the stage for the tabernacle to be built. And the same principles held later on with the temple. But certainly as the tabernacle was being built, then people were being called upon to do different, uh, different kinds of activities related to all of that. In Exodus 21, 22, we read these words. 
And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, and in everyone whose spirit moved them. And they brought to the Lord's contribution those things to be used for the tent of meeting and for all of its services and for the holy garments. And those who had the skills were, came as the Spirit moved them rather than somebody forced them or assigned them into those tasks. So you see in the Old Testament, even there, uh, God was saying, listen, I'm, I'm interested in people acting on the moving of the Spirit within them, not being under some compulsion issue where other outside pressures are brought into their life to force their hand to do something. I was thinking in the New Testament, a very similar principle emerges in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, where in chapters 8 and 9, the longest part of the Bible, by the way, addressing questions of stewardship. So if you ever want to know what God's will is about giving and stewardship, if you haven't studied chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians, you don't know what it's about. If you want to know what God says, study those chapters. He speaks to those issues of stewardship. And one of the things that he says in the ninth chapter is he said, everyone must, verse nine, verse 7, everyone must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, because God loves the cheerful giver. And of course he's talking about stewardship here. But the principle about how God deals with his people is the same. Uh, in fact, it might even be more definitive because some people have elevated money and giving almost to be the biggest issue of life. You know, And, and God says, hey, in that issue, I'm not interested in compulsion giving. I'm not interested in manipulated giving. I'm interested in free, responsive hearts in giving. That's how I want it done. You say, well, I want to get people to give more for their own good. Well, you might want that, but my suggestion to you is you don't know better than God. So whatever your motive may be, if you're doing something God is different than what God's doing, I can tell you with some authority, you're wrong. You're wrong. Well, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8, I think, crystallizes this principle of shepherds to be willing not under compulsion type of leaders. In Isaiah 6, 8, it says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am. Send me. Surrender. Not compulsion. Freely. Under shepherds, in God's plan, are to be people who, without coercion, Say to the Lord and to the rest of the church, I'm willing, I'm available, okay, God's, God's directing me. I'm not coerced into it because of pressure brought to bear on me. And I'm not coerced into it because people try to lay a guilt trip on me. I do it because of the Spirit of God's work in my life. You follow the principle? That is how leadership is supposed to operate. Obeying an inner sense of call from God, not pressure from other people. Obeying an inner sense of call from God, not some sort of selfish ambition. Uh, God says, listen, now, I, this is how I want people to be moved. When outside pressures are gone and sinful, improper ambition is removed from the picture, the aspiring for a role of leadership is a good thing. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 says, the saying is trustworthy. If anybody aspires to the office of overseer, he's a, doing a noble task. And by the way, 
lest that be misunderstood, in 1 Timothy, he has been describing some of what that task is about in ways parallel to 1 Peter chapter 5. And so nobody saw this in reference to some power base aspiring to that. They would have understood it to be the overseer sort of task, the shepherding task. And he says, listen, if you aspire to that, (laughs) that's good. That's a good thing. Uh, A noble task. One other word on that. Uh, I'd spend more time on this if I was dealing with, uh, with pastors and with uh, denominational groups, and I have, in fact, in the past. But uh, for us, let's just understand the principle. But I also want you to understand here that when he's making this emphasis on the church leader not to be coerced, but to be willing to do those roles and to be open to them, he doesn't mean by that that therefore the church leader is to be an unpaid volunteer. Uh, I've seen people draw that conclusion. It's a well-meaning sort of error, but it's not what it says. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 9.14, he said, uh, In the same way, the Lord commands that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So, now, he's not, he's not equating the way to ensure that your motives are pure is don't get any provision for your activities from the church. Uh, that, that's not going to necessarily solve it. And besides... The problems of wrong-directed motives are vastly greater than just money because there's other sorts of getting and power possibilities and those kind of things that could be in the mix. So, no, no, he's not saying here that, listen, there's something inherently wrong if we, if we pay people in leadership roles. Uh, you know, we'd have a much more... The, the idea that somehow we'd have a much more pristine, spirit-filled leadership if people didn't get paid is just wishful thinking. Wishful thinking. Uh, Well, having said that, I should also say that there have been times, we look through the book of Acts, we see Paul had to make tents. (laughs) The core missionary statesman. There were times when he was bivocational in that sense. And other times when he was receiving everything from the people that he was ministering to and with. Uh, It's just part of God's unfolding plan, that's all. But there's not something inherently better about it if they don't get paid, like it doesn't mess it up. Uh, No, we don't want to draw that conclusion about it. This is an issue of surrender and openness over against compulsion and wrong motive. I'm personally convinced that because I believe that we were rapidly approaching that climax of history, that uh, the role of, of bivocational pastors here and overseas going to dramatically increase just because the size of the churches will dramatically decrease and uh, faithful bodies of people would have a tough time by the way everybody that we support essentially in ministry overseas the African people are all bivocational in that they're all subsistence you know, they have to grow their own food they're doing, they're doing things in addition to all the ministry that's going on uh, they're, they're doing what their people do Not that the people don't step up and try to help them with it, because they do. But nonetheless, in the classic definition of bivocational, all of them are basically bivocational. That's that's the way it works. Uh, And that's what I think will be increasingly true here. But this passage isn't talking about bivocationalism, so I don't want to spend too much time on that.
He then goes on in verse 2 and he says, Do this as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. So lesson number seven in this batch of leadership lessons is that under shepherds are not to be motivated by what he describes here as shameful gain in the ESV translation. Now remember we're talking countercultural stuff here. Here's a conclusion that you can draw uh, if you have half an eye on the nature of human society in the, in the world around us. And it is this, that the world's leaders, whether political or institutional, have a tendency to be motivated by what they get from the role, not by the role. Now, that's a, you know, that's a premise, but I think it wouldn't take a lot of research to confirm it. <laughs> that's, that's the driving force in large numbers of people. You say, well, what do they get from these roles, whether it's political or institutional, corporate, whatever? No, they get power, they get respect, they get money, they get other coinage of the realm that make it worth their time and energy to get into that leadership role. Now, God's saying, whatever might be true in the dynamics of a fallen world and in the midst of the fallen institutions of this world, political or corporate, uh, I don't want that to be true in the context of the church. Because that's my people. That's, that's my institution that is alien to the culture, cross-cultural to it. That's not how I want the shepherd to operate. In fact, if the shepherd begins to operate that way, gets their eye on the wrong thing, then they are going to be guilty of going after what this passage says is shameful gain. The desire for power, respect, money, shameful gain. By the way, the Greek word translated here, shameful gain, in the ESV, it's the only place it's found in the scripture. The word basically means base gain. Uh, The Greek language used that word to describe an individual who was driven either by greed or had a goal of dishonest gain from what they were doing. In other words, they were playing the angles. They were working it, you know. That's, that's the picture. That's what this word means. And God says, that's not how I want leadership to function in the context of the church. That's, I don't want them playing the angles. I don't want them, you know, looking to things for gain. I think it's very revealing, by the way, uh, in First Timothy chapter 6, in a section talking about false teachers, warning the church about them. Listen to these words, starting in verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and doesn't agree with the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit, understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy and dissension, slanders, evil suspicions, constant frictions among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. And then it gives one other characteristic of that helps us to diagnose such people. This is this care. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So, well, how do I diagnose who's fitting into these categories? People that have begun to think about religiosity as a means of gain. I can capitalize on this. You know, send me, send me your tithe and I'll send you a prayer cloth. You know, Whatever. I mean, there's lots of that going on, and always has been. 
In Titus chapter 1, verse 11, he says, These people must be silenced because they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. In fact, in Titus chapter 1, talking about the, the qualifications for church leaders, uh, shepherds and all, it says, For an overseer is God's steward, verse 7, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent. And you say, yeah, all that makes sense. Or greedy for gain. Religion could be a means of gaining a lot. I was struck a number of years ago, and it hasn't gotten better since the time I was struck by it, but doing a study and finding out what, what income a lot of people had who were sort of prominent and uh, not always solid, but prominent. And it wasn't like, well, they did pretty good. We're talking millions and millions and millions of dollars every year coming in. I'm thinking... Well, they, they found out this is a means of gain. You know, you, you, can, you can play the spirituality, religiosity game, and you can get quite a bit out of that if you play it right. Uh, I remember challenging some pastors and saying, listen, if God's allowed you to write, and I could say it because I'd written books and had been published by Zondervan and others, and so I, could, I was in a place where it wasn't like I was throwing a stone. I said, listen... Uh, it's okay to put stuff into these forms. How about making sure that anything that comes out of those books goes into the kingdom? And it isn't something you make from it as much as the kingdom or the church that you're part of or whatever. Make it so that that's what happens. And to say it was a horrifying suggestion might be uh, not totally inaccurate. <laughs> uh, well, here's the point. He says, listen, the shepherds, there's going to be all kinds of pressure working on you from the world in which you find yourself because it's an inescapable culture. It's there. You're grazed on it. Understand it's going to be trying to influence you and pressure you in, in maybe subtle ways to try to play the angles and do the best you can in that religious position that you find yourself in. And God says, listen, uh, no. That's not what I want. I, I, I don't want the shepherds motivated by shameful gain. Uh, I want them motivated by what they have the opportunity to give, not what they have the opportunity to get. Does that mean the church shouldn't give them anything? Well, no, I've already said church is under responsibility to provide for the people who are in leadership. But now we're back to the leader, and we're saying, what's driving you? What moves you from this church to that church? Oh, they offered a better salary package, you know. Not a good thing, brothers and sisters. Uh, church leaders are to be motivated by what they give. I'm not in it, and the leaders shouldn't be in it for what power they can get, but the opportunity for service, the opportunity for encouragement. The, the shepherd should be driven by what's driving the chief shepherd. And the chief shepherd's being driven by a desire to help the sheep. I mean, that's, that's what it's about. And the possibility of helping the sheep, 
the brothers and sisters, should produce, as he puts it here, an eagerness to serve the flock. In other words, what makes you eager? The paycheck or the chance to minister? The chance to be used by God in touching lives? You know, what, what drives the person? Well, lesson seven. Shepherds aren't to be motivated by shameful gain. Say, that's pretty countercultural, Gary. Yeah, well, God said it. Ver- lesson number eight. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being an example. Shepherds, church leaders, are supposed to rely on example setting, not domination. God says, listen, if you're a shepherd, if you've been called into this task, and I've set you aside, given you a charge, let your influence ultimately stem from the example setting you do. Trust that. Trust that. Not your control over the institutional decision-making process. Uh, trust the example setting. It says, being examples. Greek word, tupas. Uh, translated example here means a figure. Literally, in the Greek language, Koine Greek was describing a stamp that struck to, like a die that you, st- you put pressure on, leaves a die, leaves an impression. Uh, the mark of a blow in that regard. So it's, uh, the idea is do something that leaves an impression, <laughs> a stamp on the people. Uh, this is exactly, by the way, what God was saying as Holy Spirit led Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, to say, set the believers an example. Same word, tupas. What does that mean? In your speech, in your conduct, in your love, meaning Greek word agape here, in your faith, and in your purity. Leave an impression for that way. Let that be the influence point. So he says, trust that. You say, well, it doesn't seem to be working, Lord. I'm trying to do that, and maybe I should have some other, other strategies involved. And God says, if this isn't working, no other strategy is going to work either. And what you have is a rebellious bunch of sheep wanting to go over a cliff. That's just the reality. So rely on example setting. In fact, he, does, he says, shepherds, my under-shepherds, are forbidden to consciously domineer over a flock. That's what he says, right here. Not domineering. That means, don't do it. I was looking and looking for some exceptions. Uh, sadly, the grammar doesn't give us any here. It's like, huh, this is, you can't do that at all, Gary. Rats. It makes, takes a lot longer to get things done than more. You know, domineering's very efficient. And for somebody out of that efficiency mode, which kind of was my background, I like efficiency, let's get this done, let's move, do it quick. God says, no, no, domineering is not what you can do. By the way, this word domineer translates a Greek word, which means to subjugate. To uh, the, uh, the King James Version actually gets a handle on it pretty well, where it says lording it over. <laughs> uh, that's, that's what it means. He says, you're not allowed to do that. Not allowed to do that. Why? No, the local church leader just doesn't have any right to that sort of autocratic power. There might be by law constitution right to it, 
Because church bylaws and constitutions don't always reflect the scriptures, do they? They tend to reflect Robert's rules. But uh, God says, here, wait, uh, this isn't an option for you. Why? Because if you give in to domineering, the outcome of that is likely to end up being harsh and brutal leadership. Back when we were looking at the idea of, well, what's a shepherd do? And we looked at Ezekiel 34, where God is confronting the shepherds of Israel because of what they weren't doing what they were supposed to do. One of the comments about those shepherds in verse 5 of Ezekiel 34 was, and with force and harshness you've ruled them. God's not interested in force and harshness in the context of the New Testament church. Now, by the way, he is not saying by that that you don't confront false teaching aggressively, confrontationally, because you do. You don't leave any room for that. But that's a different question. You know, somebody coming in as false teachers, trying to lead people away from the gospel, leading with, the, you know, leaders have to protect against wolves. So he's not talking about that. He's talking about the structure and the way the flock operate. He says, listen, you don't, <laughs> I don't want you brutal. I don't want you harsh. I don't want you dictatorial. One of the great sadnesses of my life, somebody that I had respected who had been used, I thought, in different ways to lead people to Christ, was pastoring a church outside of, outside of Chicago, and then that individual was finally taken out of the church, and it turns out because of brutal leadership, they bullied people. And then other people came to their defense, and it turns out some of those people were confronted in their churches for the same reason. They had brutal leadership too. And it made me begin to think, you know, maybe brutal leadership is not all that uncommon. People intimidating other people is a way of trying to get something done. And leaving a trail of being bullying. It made me think, maybe it's not just schools that struggle with bullying. Maybe churches have bullying going on at times in them, too. Of course, it's not maybe. Sadly, that happens. God says, yeah, I don't want it to happen. We're talking countercultural stuff here. It's not the way I want the church to function. Instead, do this. Matthew twenty twenty-eight. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for other people. Okay, that's the shepherd verse. Uh, came not to be served, but to serve. Didn't come to have people kiss his ring. Came to give his life. He says, that's how I want you to be. You know, that's, that's leadership, service. Serving. Caring. Sometimes you've got to stand for truth. Jesus was not reluctant to confront the Pharisees and say, you bunch of whitewashed sepulchers. So, I mean, there was a place for challenge and directedness. But he's, he didn't come to be served by anybody. He didn't say, I've had a tough day, bring me my breakfast, you know, or my supper. That wasn't the deal. He served. Church under-shepherds are here to serve, not be served. It's not a position of power and privilege but a position of selfless service. 
a place of selfless service, spiritual example setting, refusal to bully, refusal to use institutional machinery to intimidate people. You need more said about it? God says, these are the things we see in the world. Sadly, all too often we see them in the church. That's not how I want the church to work. I don't want it to work that way. Here's how I want the church to work. He's given us these lessons. One more. We'll end with this, and that ends the passage, believe it or not, for those of you who have been keeping count. Uh, Verse 9. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. (laughs) Lesson number 9. The under-shepherd understands that you focus on what's coming, not what is. You focus not on present benefits. You focus on what God promises. You hang on to that. That's what you're looking at. When the chief shepherd appears, the under-shepherd will receive rewards for their often frustrating and sometimes thankless task. Uh, because all, as Second Corinthians 5 tells us, will appear before the judgment seat of Christ, the bema at Christ's return in, in our lives, and we'll recognize what he's, what he's offering at that point. Uh, and he says the shepherds, the under-shepherds, uh, are going to receive a special reward at that time, or have the potential of it, if they ran the race right. I mean, they, the fact that they were an under-shepherd doesn't mean you get the reward. Unless you were an under-shepherd according to the way God said to do it. Then it's there. And he said, listen, they get a reward of an unfading crown of glory. word crown here, Stephanus, means, uh, literally means to surround, but it, it came to describe the wreath or garland that was awarded to a winner in an athletic game, in athletic contests in the Greek Empire. Uh, by the way, the same word Stephanos was used to describe the crown of thorns that was put on Jesus' head in the Greek. That's the Stephanos of thorn. Uh, crown of glory. What's glory here? Doxa in the Greek. It means to honor, renown. As the scholars would say, when it's used in relationship to a person, it's, it's meaning that they hear God saying, well done. Well done good and faithful servant. So I said, listen, shepherds, you know, get your eye off of whatever shameful gains there might be out there. Serve the Lord. Be thankful. Be, be surrendered to what he might use. And be thankful to have a chance to do stuff in his, in his service and to feed sheep. And just look to them. You know, God's going to do something. And you say, oh, well, okay, well, that's, I can do that. So I'm going to get that crown. But here, here's the irony in all this. Uh, and Revelation chapter 4, verse 10, it says, The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne, and they worship him who lives forever and ever, and they cast their crowns before the throne. In this case, it's Stephanos as well. You know, they cast the crowns. Uh, The shepherd, who really understands what's happening, even though they get that sort of crown before the Lord, when the Lord Jesus returns, they understand what's happening. And they cast it before him. Why? Because the person who really knows biblically the truth understands that anything good and useful that was done as an under-shepherd was ultimately only done by the enabling of God, by the Holy Spirit's ministry, using them as a surrendered tool. Therefore, who gets the credit? The Holy Spirit gets the credit for the work. And the elders before the Lord say, this is all clear. I got this wreath, but it's almost like 
I won this race, but I was carried. It's, it's the runner who won. They cast it before the Lord. But I believe there'll be a certain pleasure in that, too. You know, say, oh, Lord, <laughs> you know, what privilege should be able to, to throw it at your feet. <laughs> say, it really belongs to you. At least I let him carry me. The shepherd who is not living in the way God says wasn't letting the Holy Spirit carry him either. So there's going to be nothing at that point. You follow? That's useful. Earlier in the fourth chapter of 1 Peter, verse 11, it says, Whoever speaks, speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. And whoever serves, and we're talking about service now in the context of leadership. He says, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Because to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Not to the shepherd, but to him. Nine lessons on countercultural leadership. I look at these lessons. I've done what I can do to teach them to you and to adequately exposit the scriptures about them. And I do it grieved, as so often in the scriptures, because I'm so mindful of, well, that wasn't always true, Lord Jesus. (laughs) This hasn't always been who I've been. And at times, even now, is not who I should be. But what part of the Word of God do we study that that doesn't conclude in our hearts? <laughs> it's like, all right. So then Paul says, yeah, not already perfect, but I'll forget what lies behind. I'll press on toward where we need to be. Brothers and sisters, forgive me and pray for me, because we're all pressing on. We're all trying to go there with his strength and his grace. And for those times that you would justifiably be able to come to me and say, I don't think you were being the under-shepherd God calls you to be, I'll have to in humility say, I think you're probably right. (laughs) Forgive me. Lord Jesus, forgive me. Help me to learn from it. So next time I do a little better job than I did previously. May that be our heart about everything that the Word of God teaches us. Lord, I'm not there completely. Forgive me. Empower. Then I might get closer. You know, move from 60% to 68%. Get close to the 70 range where it gets into a C. You know, talking like a professor here. You know, I want to I get there. I want to get there. Do you want to get there? I pray that we as a church, we don't do it perfectly. I pray as a church, we would be countercultural. The world doesn't need any worldly examples of efficiency and power and accomplishment. Because they never direct anybody to the Lord ultimately anyway. The world needs examples where they look at it and they scratch their head and say, it doesn't make any sense to me. I don't know know how this works. I don't know what's going on there. 
Who is it that they believe in? Who is it that they're surrendered to? Why are they countercultural? Would those kind of conversations emerge in our lives and in the influence that we as a church might have? Rather than, yeah, I can figure this out. You were, you were, you were studying, uh, you, were, you, were, you were implementing over here this Madison Avenue technique, and you were implementing over here uh, this, uh, this particular understanding of organizational structure, and you were implementing over here these leadership principles uh, first elaborated on by Dr. So-and-so. Uh, may we be a puzzle in our individual lives and as a church. I want people perplexed by me and by us. So they say, I, what's going on that explains this? And we can say, this is no explanation except he is alive. He's alive. He can touch your life. He can save you. And then you can be a puzzle to people. Let's all be puzzles, shall we? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for a chance to be in your word. Thank you for caring enough about us to breathe out your truth. Thank you that we can objectively study what you've said and at the same time have confidence that your Holy Spirit illumines our hearts as we study it so that we can understand and be who you've called us to be. Guide and direct in our lives, I pray. Oh, Lord, would you make each one of us as individuals, and then we as a church family, just a puzzle to anybody who tries to make sense out of us by the world's mindsets. Well, thank you as you do that, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.